This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today I am speaking with Peter Stark, best-selling author of Astoria, Young Washington, and now the newly released Gallop Toward the Sun, Tecumseh and William Henry Harrison's struggle for the destiny of a nation. So if we want to learn from our the figures who came before us, we have to reckon with them honestly and appreciate them for what they are. This new book explores a critical period of early U.S. history, overlooked and not well understood. Peter, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, I'm so pleased to be here. So tell us, where did you grow up and what did your parents do? Well, I grew up in Wisconsin and um, my parents were very adventurous uh, and, and outdoorsy. And my, my father was actually a businessman, but he loved frontier history and doing crazy adventurous things. And my mom, um, likewise, very outdoorsy. She was, you know, a homemaker, but then she became a professional landscape architect. She went back to school and got a degree. And so between the two of them, it's kind of interesting that I, when I think about it, I, I ended up with this, this sort of uh, informal background in, you know, early frontier studies. My mom would tell me about Aldo Leopold and John Muir and some of these famous Wisconsinites who were very early in the in the wilderness preservation movement, and I learned a lot about frontier history from my dad. So, um, and I took a whole lot of adventures uh, with 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 them and our and my three siblings. Yeah, well suited to to your your career pursuits. Your record as an adventure journalist is deep. And I suppose in that type of writing, you, you, you weave in a good amount of history into the stories you tell. But talk about that kind of transition in your career from you know, writing about adventure and exploration into the, your last two books are kind of pure history books. It was a really unexpected transition on my part. And as I was growing up, I, that was about the last thing I thought I'd ever do is be writing about history as a, as a career. You know, I, I I always liked writing. I liked literature. I liked adventure. Growing up, um, I ended up going to college at Dartmouth in New England, and then I went to grad school in journalism at the University of Wisconsin, and then I got a master's. And then I wanted to live somewhere really remote, and um, I ended up in in Missoula, Montana. It was it felt more remote then than it does now, and sure. uh, but I wanted to be in the mountains basically, and so I ended up. Uh, working at the kind in a sort of part-time correspondent like way at the at the Missoulian writing features and then um I quickly got into uh magazine writing for for uh, outside magazine especially and outside was was then new it was a new voice in the magazine world and it was it was you know causing quite a stir and doing these edgy adventurous things so I started doing edgy yeah. adventurous things for outside magazine like flinging myself off of a ski jump up in the upper peninsula of Michigan with the old Finnish jumpers and doing the stuff that outside editors bought into immediately. One of the biggest things I did adventures was a small kayak expedition down the Lucenda River in northern Mozambique, which was 750 kilometers in a, down an African river that had never been fully paddled before. And it was just like really hair-raising 
adventure. You'd swing around a bend, you know, this sort of jungly bend in a kayak, and and you wouldn't know if there'd be a waterfall there, if there'd be a pot of hippos, if there'd be crocodiles leaping off the bank. It, you know, it was just like completely edgy. And I was in my late forties at that point, and I had two small children at home, and Amy, my wife, Amy Ragsdale, who who taught for years at the in the uh, dance program and ran the dance program at the University of Montana, was always encouraging my adventures, but she'd always say, but if you get killed, I'm going to be really angry. And so (laughs) on on this, on this Africa river trip, it was like, okay, I think I've gone as far as I'm going to go. So I had been writing and especially when I wrote that story, I wove in a lot of exploration history about the early explorers in Africa. At a certain point, my literary agent, Stuart Krzyzewski in New York said, you know, you write really well about history. Have you ever thought about writing about history? And then I, it just sort of dawned on me, well, you know, it's like, wow, a guy can really get him, get himself killed doing this stuff, you know, the crazy adventure stuff. <laughs> and and maybe, maybe I should sort of pivot towards history. And so that's exactly what I did. And it worked out, you know, amazingly well. So I started writing about exploration history, uh, you know, early, early Europeans going into, um, you know, very foreign environments. And I was always fascinated mm-hmm. with the first contact between Europeans and indigenous people. So that's where I've, that's how I got launched in this second phase of my writing career. And so with this latest book, Gallop Toward the Sun, you've zeroed in on a particular period of U.S. history that I don't think many folks know too much about. It's often overlooked. I mean, most of how I remember learning history was, you know, Revolutionary War and then fast forward to the Civil War. Um, But a lot of interesting stuff happened in the early 1800s as this country was sort of taking shape and deciding what it was going to be all about. Talk about how you kind of clued into this particular uh, period in our history. What was the hook? There is that very important formative part of American history where the nation had been, you know, created, born, you know, the war won against the British and then the Constitution written. But that was just the beginning. You know, there was a lot of stuff to work out. And the the way I got into this from a couple of different routes, and they both led the same way, but uh, the first book that I wrote was purely history. It was called, uh, it was called Astoria. John Jacob Astor and Thomas Jefferson's um, Lost Pacific Empire. And it was about this time in 1810 when Burbear and John Jacob Astor sent this huge expedition, essentially on the, on the trail of Lewis and Clark five years later, to establish the first American colony on the West Coast. And it ended up being an incredible disaster with all sorts of crazy stories, but historically very significant. So, so I got I got clued into that period, and the, the War of 1812 played into it, into that into that Astoria story, the Astor's Empire story, and and I knew nothing about the War of 1812 other than what a lot of people know is like the Star Spangled Banner and the Capitol gets burned, and you know who knows how, how it began, who knows how it ended, but those are the things that right. kind of pop out. So then. My next book was about, uh, it's called Young Washington, How Wilderness and War Forged the Founding Father. And it was about George Washington's 
youth in his in his twenties when he's this kind of mess of a guy. <laughs> Amazingly, he later turned out to be a great leader. But he's like a mess of a guy of a, in the wilderness of the Ohio Valley as a young Virginian colonial officer, and he, he almost dies various ways, including hypothermia. He inadvertently sets off the French and Indian War. And so I wrote about his wilderness adventures and and the significance of all of those. And then in the course of that Washington, of doing the Washington research, I was spending a lot of time in the Ohio Valley, you know, in the archives there and actually physically in the Ohio Valley. I started coming across the name Tecumseh. And, right. and I'd always heard the name Tecumseh, but I had no real association with it. As I ran across that name, I said, okay, well, what is it about Tecumseh? And I started looking into his story and it was just fascinating. And that how he unified these tribes from Lake Superior in the north down to the Gulf of Mexico on the south in the years right around 1800 to try to hold the land as one so the tribes would unify so they couldn't essentially be swindled out of it by the by the white government white settlers by the federal agents what really caught my attention was one what a powerful role he had what a powerful respected leader he was and two that he literally went toe to toe with this other character William Henry Harrison. In in American history, he's probably best known as the answer to like a bar trivia game. Yeah, exactly. The 31 days as president. And that sort of raises another interesting question that we'll get to is like why we we focus often on the presidencies and, and not so much on what these folks have done leading up to their presidencies. Well, this is essentially the part of William Henry Harrison's life that you focus on in this book. Exactly. That he did way more significant things as a, as a young man in his twenties and thirties than he, than he did later in life as, you know, he was a politician, you know, kind of congressman, senator, shortest lived president, 30 days in office or one month. So the way these things tied together was that, you know, one, there was that Washington, young Washington era, which was, it was actually the French and Indian War era that was before the revolution. And then this, the era of John Jacob Astor's expedition. And, you know, it was a, right after Lewis and Clark, um, 1810. And that's the, you know, just post-revolution era in the West, not in the East Coast, in the West. And likewise, Tecumseh and William Henry Harrison were literally going toe-to-toe on the front lawn of the governor's mansion out in the territorial wilderness of the Indiana Territory, that exact same time, 1810. And so it, it was this sort of weird convergence of dates. Here again, it's this whole body of events of history that were really key to the formation of America. And they happened right after the revolution, and they just don't get much recognition. And yet they were really profoundly influential in what we became as a country. Yeah. And, and what you're describing at the at the time, the West, what was referred to as the West during that time is sort of the Eastern side of the Midwest now. Maybe talk for a moment about the state of the tribes during that particular time in history. I mean, they've been living under pressure from colonists, from various um, European powers trying to take land. What was the setting uh, under which Tecumseh was able to emerge as a leader? 
that tribes had their own complicated history. I think people don't generally realize how intricate the tribal political world was. There were many, many different tribes, and they had different relationships with each other. When the first colonial, British colonial settlers showed up in Jamestown in 1607, you know, in kind of our founding story, that um, they entered a world that was very complicated in in terms of tribal dynamics. And for the first, you know, 150 years, European settlers didn't really move the frontier of settlement very far forward. Mm -hmm. It's almost a century and a half later when you have the French and Indian War, known as the Seven Years' War in Europe, that when that was settled, France lost that war and gave over all its claims virtually to Britain. And so now Britain is claiming not only the eastern colonies, but the lands all the way west to the Mississippi River. It's one thing to like plant your flag on those lands and say, oh, now these are the British lands. It's another thing when there are hundreds of tribes, thousands and thousands of people, many thousands of villages out there. And, you know, you can say, well, that you belong to us. Well, that's not really the case. When the revolution happened, some of the tribes did side with the British during the revolution, a a few, not, not many, not all. And then when the British lost the revolution, the U.S. said, we want all your lands west to the Mississippi River. And Britain gave those lands to the U.S. So now the U.S. is like essentially planting its, fla- its flag in those lands. But the, the line of settlement was still like back at the Appalachians or a little beyond the Appalachian crest. So what you have is you have like the, the British colonies, 13 colonies now become the 13 states that go up to the Appalachians a little farther. So technically, the United States extends all the way to the Mississippi River. The young United States thinks those are its lands, yet there are all these tribes there. So what do you do? And that's where we get really tangled up. And that's where this story leads, basically. We'll be back to my conversation with Peter Stark after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. This is Meg Oliver, CBS News correspondent, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Peter Stark about his latest book, Gallop Toward the Sun. And so talk about that first intersection between Harrison and Tecumseh. How did, they, how did their paths initially cross? So William Henry Harrison was the sixth generation of one of the oldest, most established plantation families in Virginia, the Harrison family. Hmm. So, and William Henry was one of three sons. Their dad was Benjamin Harrison V. And Benjamin Harrison V is one of the central founding fathers. And yet, you know, they had this plantation that it was fifth fifth generation. And they, over five generations of tobacco farming, they'd really exhausted the soil. Benjamin V told his three sons, you know, this plantation's been supporting our family for five generations, but it's not going to work for you guys. You guys need each need a, a career, a profession. William Henry 
was a sort of, you know, kind of gangly guy, really smart, but he loved the outdoors. So the old man Harrison says, you're going to medical school. So he's the guy who likes the outdoor life and, you know, sort of adventure. And now he's in this lab in Philadelphia, you know, measuring bodily fluids and, and blood. And William Henry decides, actually, this is not for me. And so he bails out of medical school. The old man dies, meanwhile. Friends from the Revolution says to young William Henry, hey, um, you know, if you're looking for some action, just go over the mountains. There are a bunch of Indian wars going on over there, you know, over oh, the Appalachian. Yeah. And so that sounds pretty good to William Henry. And But, you know, he wants to be an officer. And by this time, he's I think he's just turned 18. And, you know, he's, you know, he's like a plantation guy. He's a gentleman. He doesn't want to be like a soldier. Well, you need to be, to be an officer, you need to be 21 years old. And he's 18. So this is apparently what happened, because I think this is the direct signature. He goes to the, his father's former roommate from the Continental Congress. His father's former roommate is, happens to be President George Washington. And so George Washington signs off on this kind of fake commission for for young William Henry Harrison. He signs him in as an underaged, you know, ensign. And so then Henry, William Henry at age 18 goes over the mountains. And at that very moment that he sets foot on land in the uh, getting off a riverboat in the Ohio uh, Valley, there's this incredible rush of people coming out of the woods with all their clothing torn, starving, you know, completely freaked out. They've been running for a hundred miles day and night because they were it was a US force that had been caught in a major Indian ambush way up in northwestern mm. Ohio. Tecumseh it was from a very long line of Shawnee leaders and chiefs and including his mother. There were female chiefs in in, in the Shawnee society. And his father had died in seventeen seventy four fighting the first Virginia colonial force that came over the mountains. So the, right. there were settlers illegally coming over into the Kentucky country, which is where the Cherokee and Shawnee lived. And the the, the Shawnee, the, there was a lot of turmoil back and forth. And Tecumseh's father died fighting this, this force of British colonial Virginia soldiers. In his dying words, he told his oldest son, who was kind of an observer at this battle, he told his oldest son, I want you to raise your brothers to be honorable warriors, to be brave, to be, um, you know, respectful, and to never give in to the whites. And so that was the word that came down in Tecumseh's family line. All the brother, all the Tecumseh's brothers rose up to become Shawnee warriors to resist the continuous white onslaught coming over the mountains into the Kentucky and Ohio country. Western expansion wasn't a foregone conclusion. It was sort of a thing that was explicitly decided was going to be a policy at this time. And then there was conflict. I mean, talk about the decision to, um, to sort of make that an explicit aim of the new country. You know, there's there's stories of a secret letter from Jefferson talking about trying to swindle the tribes out of their lands. Like this was this was the formation of a policy of expansion sort of unfolding in real time in this moment. When the U.S. was was um, founded, you know, after the uh, declaration, after winning the war, 
as the Constitution was being written, the the founding fathers had to figure out, okay, if we're going to be grow larger than these thirteen colony states, how are we going to how are we going to do that? What's the mechanism? So they came up with this kind of um, template to absorb new lands into the you know the fledgling United States, and the the first big chunk that they they tried to absorb was called the Northwest Territory. They designated it the Northwest Territories. And it was very explicit in that mechanism. Utmost respect will always be shown towards the Indian tribes. Their lands will never be taken from them without their consent. It's, you know, it's just black and white. So that was the aegis under which this whole Western movement was starting to move forward. However, there are all these tribes out there, land agents, uh, settlers, were, were using kind of every device they could to um, convince tribes to sign treaties to give up their lands or to turn the legal rights to their lands over to the United States so then the United States could hold legal rights to the lands and then the United States could turn them in, the lands into states. Right. And all grounded in the assumptions of the white folks, you know, legal theory and legal treaties and all these mechanisms that are completely at odds or completely foreign to the to the the tribal leaders that they're negotiating with. Yeah, the whites are throwing down this legal system that means nothing to them. I mean it's almost like a misnomer to even call these things treaties because they're not really even agreements. I did a lot of research into the treaties of this time and it's I mean it just it it's just really kind of makes you disgusted and it it just yeah. makes your eyeballs roll. It, there there were a lot of things done like finding, you know, a sub-chief of a band in one place and then hundreds of miles away finding a tribe that held lands and having the sub-chief who was hundreds of miles away sign a paper giving away that tribe's lands, even though he had almost nothing to do with that tribe and he was hundreds of miles away. There in seventeen in, the, in 1791 and the early 1790s, there was what's called the Northwest Indian Wars. And that's when um, it kind of came to a head. And when that was finally settled after a lot of battles, five years of fighting, the tribes and the federal government agreed to something called the Treaty of Greenville in 1795. And that drew a line, a treaty line, that was widely agreed on by the by tribal chiefs and by the federal government down what's now the middle of Ohio. And the idea was from now on, all the wars were settled. There was going to be peace. This is 1795. The whites are going to stay on the east side of the line and the tribes are going to stay on the west side and there's not going to be any conflict. Well, that lasted for um, less than 10 years. William Henry Harrison was a territorial governor on the west side of the line. And he started engineering these treaties to break that treaty line, to get to to get land past that treaty line. He had written a letter to President Jefferson saying, you know, there are Indian tribes out here and whenever white settlers come, it's really hard on the tribes and there's disease and there's whiskey. And, you know, I leave it to you, Mr. President, whether to do anything about this, but if we don't do anything, they're going to be exterminated and it's going to leave a very dark stain on the American character. And so William Henry predicted that if nothing was done to to prevent this these encroachments, it was going to be a, a, a terrible thing for the tribes. And Jefferson didn't respond to that letter. 
in, mm. that was in 1801. And then in 1803, Jefferson wrote a letter to William Henry Harrison, and he said, do not show this to anybody. Hold this close to your breast. We need to get as much land as quickly as possible from the tribes all the way to the Mississippi River. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to get the leading chiefs as deeply in debt as possible at the government trading posts, and then they'll have to give up their lands to settle their debts. And so that was one of these pivotal moments when I saw that he yeah. he did that. I, I couldn't believe it. And that's how much momentum there was in this Western movement. He wanted to protect the lands out to the Mississippi River. He wanted to make them the U.S. He didn't want France and Napoleon to be nosing around out there. You know, in our remaining time, I'd love to just pull the lens back out uh, in kind of this vein of, you know, you've written a book that zeroes in on a period of American history that has a lot of warts and a lot of notions where the men who articulated a lot of the founding ideas of this country acted in ways that were inconsistent with those ideas. Um that type of history is nuanced, it's complicated, it's messy, it's honest, um, but it's also kind of, many think of it as threatening and dangerous. What is your approach to that, to telling those types of stories? You mentioned some of your, your sort of mixed feelings about Jefferson, but also like, what is it about our country and culture that makes it hard for us to kind of confront these truths? The, the way I look at it is that we have to understand not only these, you know, heroic acts that our forefathers might have done, you know, the founding fathers, the founding mothers, whomever, there's incredible bravery, you know, on the part of the founding fathers. They hung themselves way out over the line to found this country, this kind of ideological experiment. And on the other hand, they were all self-interested people. They, they, they had both this great courageous streak that's very visible, yet there's also, as you really look into this history, there's self-interest runs through it too. And it's in a way to understand, to admire the courage, you have to understand the, 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 the more negative parts of it, the self-interest. And that you, it's hard to make someone into a hero if they're faultless if they're flawless, if they're portrayed as flawless, because you, you know it's not a, 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 true, a, a true portrayal. You know it's not a real person. So if we want to learn from our, the figures who came before us for their good and their bad, for their, their great decisions and from their mistakes, we have to reckon with them honestly and, and appreciate them for what they are. So you need to see both the strengths and the flaws of of all these characters in in our in our past. Thomas Jefferson was way at the forefront of that when it came to the treatment of Indian tribes, and we're we're living with that legacy today. And we're you know we're not really going to get past it until we acknowledge. It. I mean, it's not a matter of rep- reparations. I think it's a matter of of being honest, truthful, and open about our history. And only then can we reconcile ourselves with each other. I think that's well said. And that spirit, that sensibility comes forth in this new book of yours, Gallop Toward the Sun, comes forth in, in your other books of yours that I've read. 
Peter, it's been a pleasure just to get snippets of this story. I encourage listeners to go check out the book, Gallop Toward the Sun, Tecumseh and William Henry Harrison's Struggle for the Destiny of a Nation. Congratulations. Uh, It's a wonderful work, and um, I wish you all the best of success with it. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. Ella Hall is our production assistant. VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks made our music, and Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.